Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of the show so you can hear how to get a copy of this program and other helpful documents. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. That's right. Thank you, Tim. Like Tim said, I'm Carrie McCoy, and it's time for me to get up in your business. Before we start, I want to introduce you to the people at the table. We have Tim Bowen, our technician, who you just heard from. He'll be taking your calls and pushing the buttons. Say hello, Tim. Hello, Tim. And recording our show to make a podcast available next week is our technician, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. No problem. This show, Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, began with Entrepreneurs in Mind, a platform for me, a small business owner and a guest, to pay forward our experiential knowledge in a conversational way. As with all endeavors, it has had some unexpected outcomes, like the show is not just for entrepreneurs and wannabe entrepreneurs, but really for everyone. We are all inspired by everyday people's stories of how they worked hard, took risks, and found their voice. Another is that business is creative, more than I ever even really thought. And last, behind each of my successful guests, I have found the heart of a teacher. Today, my guest, Miss Elise Strout, checks off all those aforementioned boxes. She is founder and CEO of Corporate Insight Strategy. This may sound like upper management business advice, and it is, but it is also going to be a conversation about how employees can mitigate risks over the next five years as the baby boomers, our population's largest sector, begins retiring from leadership positions and transfer ownership or possibly closes their small business. This is going to make a paradigm shift in our country's economy like never before. So whether you're a boss an owner, or an employee, you will want to hear what Elise has to say. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you may be asking yourself, what's this lady's story and why does she have a radio show? Well, Tim is here to tell you. Thank you, Carrie. Over 40 years ago, and with only $400, Carrie McCoy founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, this business has grown and changed dramatically, from door-to-door sales, to telemarketing, to mail order and catalog sales. And now, Flag and Banner relies heavily on the internet, including our newest feature, live chatting. Each decade has required a change in sales strategy and procedures. Her business and leadership knowledge grew with time and experience, as well as the confidence to branch out into multimedia marketing that began with our nonprofit Dreamland Ballroom, as well as our in-house publication, Brave Magazine, and now this very radio show that you're listening to. Each week on this show, you'll hear candid conversation between her and our guests about real-world experiences on a variety of businesses and topics that we hope you'll find interesting. Carrie says that many business rules, such as treat your employees well, know your profit margin, and have a succession plan, can be applied across just about any industry. What I find encouraging is her example that hard work pays off. Did you know that for nine years while starting Flag and Banner, she supplemented her income with many part-time jobs? What that shows is that persistence, perseverance, and patience prevail. Today, Flag and Banner has 10 departments, and I have 25 coworkers. It reminds us all that small businesses are the fuel of our country's economic engine and that they empower people's lives. If you'd like to ask Carrie questions or share your experience or story, you can send an email to questions at upyourbusiness.org. 
Thank you, Tim. My guest today is Elise Stroud, founder and CEO of not one but two complex business consulting firms. Not long after graduating from college with a BA in commercial art, Elise found herself a single mother and came to the realization she needed another more lucrative career. Back in school and during its early years, she studied data processing and programming. This landed her a job with a newly formed little company called Systematics that went public in 1990 and eventually sold to another little company called Alltel. Today, it is part of Fidelity Investments. Elise's career at Systematics soared, and by the time she left, she had earned the respect as senior system consultant. Now, 40-ish, Elise Stroud decided to embark on a career of entrepreneurship. She opened Stroud Consulting Group, a software and project management company that helped financial institutions make the leap from the 19th century way of banking to the 20th century digital business banking world. Some of the clients she coached, developed, installed, and tested software and procedures for were Signature Bank, Citizens Bank, Citibank, American Express, and yes, Chase Manhattan Bank. For two decades, her company successfully worked in operations for some of the most prestigious clients in America. During this time, she grew to understand that the non-financial side of the business was just as equally important as the operational side. Acting on this realization, more recently, she opened her second business aptly named Corporate Insight Strategy, a company that evaluates and prepares its clients and their employees for fast growth, company changes, and or leadership and owner transitions. As with all my guests on UIYB, Up In Your Business, Elise graciously shares her knowledge. I saw and heard you speak at Rotary Club 99 and knew I had to have her on the show. In addition, she volunteers her time at Wildwood Park for the Performing Arts, the Centers for Youth and Families, the Little Rock Technology Park, and Startup Weekend, just to name a few. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the intelligent easy to understand and insightful Elise Stroud. Thank you, Carrie. You're welcome. The intro could frighten off an average listener by having them think this show is going to be all about advice for upper management, and that is absolutely not true. Well, I hope we not we won't make it boring. We're not going to make it boring because no. your, your data is fascinating. I heard you speak at Rotary and was kind of blown away by the topic, and I heard a term that I'd never heard before, which was called the silver tsunami. Can you explain to our listeners what that means? Absolutely. Uh, the silver tsunami is a term that was coined actually about 10 years ago when uh, some economists recognized that we were about to go massive change in, in wealth and company ownership as all the baby boomers retired. And there are like 12.3 million baby boomers who own businesses of various size in the U.S. And having all those people retire within a decade of each other has got to have a big impact on the company, so or, or the country, rather. So that's what the silver tsunami is, is all about, is what are the implications of so many of us baby boomers, uh, entering a different life phase at the same time. Mm -hmm. We are the biggest population. We are. The biggest sector. So let's back up and let's learn a little bit about you so that everybody will know why you're here and how you got here. You you got a degree in art, then you got a degree in programming, 
Then you went to work in programming. But but those two, getting a degree in art, then getting a degree in programming, don't seem like they come from the same side of the brain. That seems like a right brain, left brain. How did you make that leap? Tell us how that happened. I don't know. That just kind of works for me. Uh, I, I guess I like switch back and forth and use both sides of my brain all the time. Um, it it seemed a logical connection to me. Uh, it's it's important when you present data to people on a computer system that it be presented in a way that that works for them, that is artistic maybe. Um, one of the things they teach you in art school is is to focus things you want people to see in the image in certain spaces of the image. So that's where your focus is. And that same thing works when you're designing computer systems. You, you put the important data in a place of focus and you keep it clean and uncluttered, easy to understand. So that kind of worked. Um, actually, the connection is so strong that that uh, – double degree in art and programming led to a whole industry and people doing game programming, which I missed out on. I wish I'd caught a sniff of that because that would have been fun. Uh, but there are lots of people now who, who do both of those things. I guess when you're designing websites, too. So yeah. um, that in the, it, you, went, you went back to school in the 70s, am I right? Um, gosh, I th- it was late seventies, early eighties. I forget. So programming was a pretty far out degree. Um, there weren't a lot of people doing it then, mm-hmm. and, and when you got not a lot of women. Mm-hmm. And when I bet, and when you got out, you got a job at Systematics. Yeah, tell us about that. So I joined Systematics when it was still reasonably new. Uh, it had, I think, less than than. 2,000 employees at the time. So it had already finished that early growth phase and and was becoming global at that time. It was a fun place to be. You met a lot of really interesting people and got to do very interesting work. And uh, Walter Smiley was one of the best leaders I've ever worked with. Uh, I'm fond of saying everything good I ever learned about company management, I learned from Walter. Uh, if not directly, then just by watching how he did things. A lot of people think that these kind of companies need to be, I kind of read this about Walter, that he had a different philosophy from a lot of other people that were starting uh, programming companies and software companies. They were starting these companies with the hopes of selling it. Mm-hmm. He was starting the company for the long haul, which made him a little bit different. Uh, he was kind of a renegade, and I, I don't know that he would claim that, but but he was in many ways. He had a very strong value system about every decision has to be weighed in terms of being good for the employees, the stakeholders, and the customer. And if it didn't do good for all three of those, you didn't do whatever it was. So that was kind of different. Today, a lot of people feel like their fiduciary responsibility is to the stockholders more than to the employees, more than to the customer, but put the stockholder first. Uh, Walter Hussman was on here a couple weeks ago, and he completely flips that and says the last person you should think about is the stockholders. So there's a whole different philosophy in the way people run publicly traded companies today. 
Yeah, there is. I, I think they've been forced into that by a lot of very reactionary controlling stakeholders uh, who take them to court and try to control from the cheap seats. Um, it It's hard. I, I would have to go back to Walter's philosophy, though. I really like that balance, and I've never seen another management philosophy that I thought was better in the mm-hmm. long run. Mm-hmm. Was there one event that happened? So you're you're fine. You're at you're at Systematics. You like it. You've mm-hmm. got personal growth. You've got career growth. But then you decide to go out on your own and yeah. start and start Stroud Consulting Company. Was there some event that happened that made you decide to do that? Actually, there was. I uh, went to a conference where all these bank managers were talking about the high rates they were having to pay consultants. And they talked about the work that these people were doing for them. And it was exactly the work I did day in, day out. And they were paying three or four times the hourly rate that I personally was making. And so I was going, wait, I you know, this doesn't compute. I can go do this. So I put some feelers out to find out if I could, in fact, find work independently. It turns out that was just a matter of raising your hand and saying I'm available. And so I incorporated my consulting company and jumped ship and went and did that. And I really liked the level of control that it gave me. I got to make choices about what clients I worked with. I got to make choices about what I learned. And I am kind of a learning junkie. And so one of my dissatisfactions with being an employee of a big corporation is that somebody else gets to choose your new adventures, your new learnings. They get to choose it because they're paying for you and they would be paying for the classes that you take. And, And that chafed a lot. Um, because I frequently didn't get to go take the classes that I wanted or, or do the new projects that I wanted to be a part of. Um, and, and that's a hazard I think a lot of employers run with people who have a high degree of appetite for learning new things. So I was just better off out doing my own thing. Were you in competition with Walter? Well, Walter was then out of the company. He'd already sold it. And he'd already gone public with the company. He had the public. Had the already com- public, and well, I think they were all tell by the time I left. And so the whole, probably the whole culture of the place had changed. Totally different. Well, then, you, yeah, okay. Right. Um, that didn't play into your decision? Is it the oh, culture changed? That, that played heavily into my decision. When we worked for Walter, he was very clear that each one of us was important. You felt that in the decision-making from day to day. Um, by the time I left, the company was very different. It was very corporate. Uh, all of the employees were pretty clear that they were plug-and-play parts at that point and that we were easily replaceable. And that's kind of hard on your ego, especially when programmers tend to be pretty egotistical. Oh, really? I didn't beings. know. No. <laughs> Imagine that. No, right. Um, so, you know, you don't, you don't, tell them that they're a plug-and-play part. Uh, So I talk about culture a lot when I work with clients now. We actually developed a a culture test that I'm pretty pleased with. And I frequently talk about the difference between the days that we worked with Walter and Systematics and then what the company became as it grew. 
Um, and not to single out one company to talk about all companies that go through that kind of massive growth are going to lose that hometown personal feel. The culture is going to change. Especially when you have a strong uh, leader at the top who started the company. Sometimes right. it really changes when, the, when you go to the second generation, even if it didn't. Absolutely. So, you know. so when we come back, we're going to really talk a lot about that. You've got a lot of experience in that. And um, we're going to find out about the country's economic future as the baby boomers begin to retire. And we're going uh, to give business owners and employees and the new CEOs advice on how to make those transitions easier. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. If you miss any part of this show, a podcast will be made available next week at flagandbanner.com's website. If you would prefer to listen on iTunes, YouTube, or SoundCloud, you'll find those links there as well. Lots of listening options. We'll be right back. I want to be a billionaire so freaking bad. Buy all of the things I never had. I want to be on the cover of Forbes magazine, smiling next to Oprah and the Queen. Oh, every time I close my eyes, I see... Elise and I are rocking to Bruno Mars right now. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Elise Stroud, founder and CEO of Corporate Insight Strategy. Exactly that. It's the Corporate Insight Strategies that she's going to walk us through. So before we went to break, we talked about how she was a programmer at Systematics. Then because the culture changed and because she found an opportunity, she started her own company called Stroud Consulting Group, where she helps banks... Well, you tell us what Stroud Consulting Group did. Stroud Consulting did a lot of uh, software integrations and installations and uh, data conversions for banks around the country. Uh, It capitalized on all that experience that we all had from our days at Systematics and um, filled a niche uh, for people that needed the kind of services that we could provide that that they couldn't get from the software vendor, uh, so that was pretty handy. Did you uh, did you get stock in Systematics when it sold to Alltel? Yes. Is that the money you use? I mean, not to pry, but is that how you kind of started out in your own business? You kind of had a little nest egg that you could use to start off? You know, amazingly, that company didn't cost me very much at all to start. Because there's no inventory. No, there was it's no just inventory. It's just it's all brain power. And uh, we we had zero advertising budget because all I had to do was raise my hand and say I was available and people called which was pretty sweet you're in a very niche market there weren't very many people that did what you did and had That's the right. experience you had that's right. And talk about a scary thing to do. Just think about this listeners. She's going into banks. She's installing software. She's moving people. She's moving these huge banks. I mean, some of your customers were Chase Manhattan. You're 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 putting in software, you're changing their procedures, you're training the CEOs, you're training top or upper management on 21st century banking, digital banking, and the security risks, I can't even imagine how, I mean, you make, these are banks, this is people's money, you make one mistake, Oh yeah. the liability could be. Well, it takes a village 
don't think I was ever the only person involved on one of those projects. But those your name's mammoth. on the sign. Well, yeah. It is Stroud Consulting well, Service. Well, that's true, but but rarely were we the only player in a project. Those are such huge banks, and, and the projects that we worked on may have had 50 to 100 people working on them all at the same time. That could almost be a detriment, though. Uh, yeah, because it's a lot of moving parts to manage. Uh, it, it takes tremendous oversight to be sure that that goes down effectively. And I'm not sure I'm going to get these numbers right, but you were talking about the massive risk of error. And I remember sitting down and taking a look at uh, a conversion that I was doing for, I think it was Citibank, and um, a half of a percent error rate was hundreds of thousands of accounts in error. And so we had to get it 100% right. That was the only thing that was acceptable at all. Um, and humans don't do that. Oh, you can with appropriate care. Okay. You just spend enough time testing. How long does it take to implement one well, Conversions conversion. might take anywhere from six months to a year just to do one software system. That seems pretty fast to me. Well, you know, once you once you have the process down and it becomes a wash and rinse sort of activity, you you can get it done pretty quickly. You know what decisions have to be made. You know how to scrub the data and take. You know, you know what the program's going to look like. Uh, you so wrote the it, software yourself, the original um, base software that you that you that you used was something that you'd written. So well, you I was knew it pretty one, well. Uh, yes, I knew it really well. I was one of a large group of programmers that worked on that software, and so we each had pieces of it that we had that written that all worked together in this big whole. And, and frequently, would, I did write the conversion programs. And then you would take the same software and modify it for each bank a little bit different, but it was basically the same uh, mm-hmm. uh, inner works of how it worked. Yes, that was Systematic's business model. They developed software that that handled all the basics. And so clients would want it customized, and you could either do that by writing additional code, or you could uh, change options within the software that allowed it to work in different ways. What was the biggest hurdle? Then we'll move on to the next topic. But what was the biggest hurdle about doing that? And do people still need it? Do banks even need conversion anymore? No. Yes. Yes, they still do conversions, and they're getting uglier. What Um, does that mean? uh, Well, more accounts, which means longer processing time and more complications. And sometimes the the size of the files, uh, I'm going to talk techie at you, the sizes of the files have exceeded what you can put in one vSAM file, which, which means you have to have multiple big files, and then you don't know where which one of these big buckets your account is in. So that's a whole other level of complication. And But bef- when I was doing conversions, they were mostly uh, mainframe to mainframe. And you were just consolidating two banks. But now we're seeing uh, 
people go from mainframe to new architecture technology. And so it's not apples and apples. It's not just an easy move. There's more complications to it. Uh, so I'm kind of glad to be out of that business. Right I was going to ask you, are you out of it completely? Yeah. How yeah. long have you been out? For three years. What Was there something that happened that made you decide to get out? So, yes. Because I watched all these conversions go down, I kind of saw the fallout. Um, there's there's a high degree of failure in acquiring another company because the the ROI tends to not return on investment. Don't, oh, I'm sorry, don't spell um, acronyms. Acronyms like the, the return on investment frequently is mm-hmm. not what was expected when people cut the deal, and so there's. Once people start recognizing there's a huge push to let people go, make people work, you know, 48-hour days, like like that's humanly possible, uh, there are just a lot of tough decisions that have to be made at the executive level once they see that this acquisition is not going to meet their expectations. So I thought, okay, you need to know this earlier when you can plan appropriately for it. Uh, you need to fund based on reality and not something you made up. Uh, imagine that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just got tired of seeing the blood on the floor. Yeah. So, so we thought we could take the information that we had gained over the years, all of our observations, and uh, pair that with some research and develop a, a way of knowing early what those gotchas were going to be. So my then business partner, Bridget Ferris, and I kind of, you know, huddled up over beers and said, let's let's go do this thing. So we invested a fair amount of money and time and research into really quantifying that model and putting it down on paper where we could get it out and test it. And so we used all of that to develop this huge assessment model that allows us to take a look at a deep dive into the operational, non-financial realities of a company. And if you do two companies, you can gap them against each other. So I can show you the differences between the two companies. And you can then plan your integration effort with some knowledge about what trouble you're going to run into. You can budget appropriately and and schedule appropriately. So then, theoretically, you don't have all the blood on the floor. Wow, what a concept. Nobody really thinks of it like that, but the culture of the company mm-hmm. is important. Culture's huge. Culture's huge. A lot bigger than people realize. So there is research that shows that 60% of the companies that fail do so because of cultural issues. And that's especially true when you look at the mergers and acquisitions space. Because when they change over mm-hmm. leadership mm-hmm. or ownership, mm-hmm. the culture changes. Right. Every and time. And morale goes every time. And the morale goes down. So your company goes in, your new company goes mm-hmm. in and doesn't look at the financial piece mm-hmm. of it at all. I don't care about the numbers. 
So do you go in with the guy who's doing the financial part, who's doing the software upgrade, and you partner with, like your old company would have been who you would have partnered with? I don't know why you didn't keep your old company and make an old, use your old company to do the financial part and the software part, and then to do the non-operational part or the or, uh, the, or to do the operation non-financial to do the operational part mm-hmm. and then you would have like a whole ball of wax right there well we could i mean i never did the finances i like to partner with cpas because there's a whole other kind of brain and i i appreciate the heck out of cpas and have great respect for them so i would rather them do what they're really good at and then you bring in the software and you implement what the what the what the CPA say, and and now you've quit doing all of that, and you are now doing the operational part and the culture part and the training part, mm-hmm. and you've got ways of measuring that. It doesn't seem like there'd be a way to measure that because there's no numbers that go with that. Well, that's what people said to us early on. They're going, "This is too squishy. Yeah. You can't measure it." And I said, hide and watch. Uh, so we came up with a way to convert those squishy elements of a company into something that's scorable. And that's a good part of the, the IP that we're currently patenting. Oh. Um, is, is our process for turning all those soft aspects of a company into something that you can quantify, put numbers to, and use that to compare one company to the next. Are you going to tell us those, those are in a minute? Oh, there's a ton of them, but yeah. You're going to hit the best ones? All right. The name of your new company is Corporate Insight Strategy. Right. Which because is- Insight is your best strategy. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. At first, when I read that, I thought, what a huge, broad name. It could mean almost anything. But the more you read about it and you explain it, you're like, it makes total sense. It's the insight, mm-hmm. which makes a great, uh, which which I'm, I'm all about it. It's the squishy part. All right, it's time for us to take another break. We'll come right back and continue our conversation with Elise Stroud, founder and CEO of Corporate Insight Strategy. She will give us advice to retiring business owners and leaders on how to successfully onboard the next CEO and talk to the employee about how to mitigate their job risk during these transitions. It's free advice and insight from the expert. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. If you miss any part of the show, a podcast will be made available next week at flagandbanner.com's website. If you prefer to listen on iTunes, YouTube, or SoundCloud, you'll find those links there. Lots of listening options. We'll be right back. Arkansas Flag and Banner is proud to underwrite Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy. McCoy began this broadcast a year and a half ago with the intention of offering a mentoring platform for those with an entrepreneurial spirit. Through candid conversation and interesting interviews with business and community-minded Arkansans, listeners gain insight into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Carrie McCoy, founder and president of Arkansas Flag and Banner, believes in paying knowledge and experience forward and developed this radio show as a means of doing so. The biographies, life experiences, and wisdom of her guests would likely go unheard if not for this venue. Rarely do people open up for an hour to an audience about their life, mistakes, triumphs, and pitfalls. This unique radio show allows the listener intimate access into the stories of prominent leaders in our state. I am Adrienne McNally, 
manager of the Arkansas Flag and Banner Showroom and Gift Shop, located on the first floor of the historic Taborian Hall on the corner of 9th and State Streets in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. In business for 43 years, we offer an old-school shopping experience with front door parking, clerks to help you, and department store variety. Open to the public Monday through Friday, 8 to 5.30, and Saturday, 10 to 4. Thank you, Adrian. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Elise Stroud, founder and CEO of Corporate Insight Strategy. For those just tuning in, the first company Elise started was Stroud Consulting Firm, where she helped banks transition into the digital banking area, and she did that for 20 years. And now she started yet another company called Corporate Insight Strategy, where on your website, you describe your company as one that coaches client organizations to prepare for growth and leadership transition by using fact-based models to assess the status of the organization, operations, and culture. You just kind of told us what that means, so give us a little snap. Uh Uh-oh, we've already got a phone call. Hello, you're listening Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Have you got a question for Elise? Well, thank you for taking my call. No problem. Uh, I'm very interested in the whole issue of corporate culture. Uh, basically, what are the metrics that uh, you use in assessing a corporate culture? I mean, for example, is the culture nurturing? Is it rewarding? Is it a demanding culture? Those kinds of things. Thank you much. I'll listen offline. All right. Thanks for your call. Perfect question. We're just about to talk about that. Perfect. Thank you. I just love to talk about corporate culture because I personally think it's so very interesting. So there are a lot of really useful views out in the world about what culture is and how you measure it and what you do about it. We chose a model that we use thought leadership from a gentleman, a professor, uh, Gert Hofstede, who wrote the book on corporations and culture. And if you need something to put you to sleep at night, I highly recommend that book. What's it called? Corporations and Culture. Okay. It's uh, very academic. Uh, he was a PhD. Um, but it's, it's very useful information to think about the different styles of interaction that are components of culture within a company. And uh, it's all about how you work together to do business. So culture is either the grease that makes things work well or it's a glue that gums it up and makes it not work at all. So how do you measure So our process is to take each one of these styles and identify observable behaviors that what's def- this what styles meaning a style so we grade 28 of them there's 28 and, styles right and wow. there will be things like uh negotiation process it's like how do you negotiate toward decisions within your company okay and on one end of that it might be that there's absolutely no negotiation the boss gets to decide period And on the other end of the spectrum, it might be highly collaborative where, you know, facts are gathered from all parties. And it's a democratic approach. It's very democratic. All right. What's the next one? What's another one? uh, Another one might be the degree of voice that the customer has. So customer's voice. Customer's voice. Um, 
And at one end of the spectrum, the customer may have absolutely no voice. We're going to do what we're going to do, period. And I hope to goodness that you buy our product, but we're not listening to you. And the other end is the customer's always right. Right. And then give me another one. I know there's 28. We're not going to do them all, but I want to get the top Because I would ones. be hard-pressed to name all 28. Cheat <laughs> Just cheat. give us the top ones. Uh, uh, employees have a voice. Mm-hmm. Customers have a voice. Yeah. And then uh, what, what would be another one? Well, let's talk about uh, employee identification. Oh. Uh, we've told, we love to tell stories about systematics. So one end of that spectrum is where employees are very much defined by the company they work for. We take very much pride in working there. And if I meet you at a party, I'm going to tell you I work at flagandbanner.com. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's a source of pride for me. On the other end of the spectrum, I don't identify with the company at all, and I won't tell you unless you force me to. I take no personal pride in it. That is so tr- What did you say? McDonald's. Oh, McDonald's. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, give us. Come on. You can think of one more. Uh, power structures. Okay. Are, are another one. Uh, we've, we've seen very dictatorial, autocratic companies. You read about them in the news all the time. Uh, and so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end is where there's totally collaborative decision-making processes. But that was and the, that it's was separate the, from negotiations. Oh, it is? Uh, was it Volkswagen in Germany that got in this much oh, trouble? Yes. They're a very autocratic, dictatorial kind of company. And even though there were whistleblowers up and down, they were shut down. And the guy at the top said, get this thing done. So they did it. We had a lady come on here who told us what our culture was. We never could figure it out. Chelsea Wakefield, she came on here about a month or two ago, and she said that personnel archetypes are not just in humans, but there are archetypes for businesses, too. That's true. And she said that the archetype of Arkansas Flag and Banner was rebels. Everybody there was a rebel. Oh, I can totally see that. That's what she said. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So so we don't work in terms of archetypes. I work in terms of those those things that have to do with you doing your business day in and day out. Uh, and it's it's developed in a way that I can score you on all these 28 components. And then I can compare you to a company that you're looking to buy and show you those places where you're different and where you're going to have to plan some internal marketing strategies to merge those two different cultures. You're going to have to make some decisions about what you want to be together. Internal marketing? Yeah. Talk about internal marketing. I've never thought about marketing internally. Ah, so... If I, as a CEO, say I want us to be rebels, let's use your example. All right. Uh, I have to model that behavior. I have to tell it in some fashion to my employees so they know that's what I value. So you're marketing this concept to your staff. You're telling them this is what you want the company to be. And that's one thing if you have a small company but if you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of people, that becomes a much bigger marketing campaign because those people don't interact with you every day at that point. So you've got to have at least seven touches 
to get the message out. This is just like marketing to the public at large. So you've got a really big company. You've got to yes. talk to get your feeling out because you can't walk around like I do every morning and say hi to everybody and right. share the love. You've got to have a way to reach them seven times. Yeah. Which would be an email. Mm-hmm. That's one place. It might be you have some big meeting or you do a video or there there are lots of different ways to to contact people and to reach out and touch them. But you've got to do that in order to provide this consistent message. And then you have to keep that going over time to keep reinforcing it. And it's very easy to break. If they, if you say we're X and your employees see you out in public doing Y, there went your credibility. It's gone. So then you have to start all over again. I mean, people do not understand how important credibility is. No, it credibility, is huge. ethics are everything. It's everything. It is. Being real is, is critical to being an effective leader. It certainly is. I hope everybody heard that, and I hope someone's tweeting it. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about the tsunami. All of us baby boomers are retiring, and we own 12.3 million businesses that are going to change hands or close in the next five to six years. Yes. So we can talk about the retiring business owner. What's the right thing for them to do? What's the wrong thing for them to do? We can talk about the new CEO or leader. What's the right thing for them to do? What's the wrong thing for them to do? And we can talk about the employee. What's the right thing for them to do? And what's the wrong? Because because this tsunami changeover, silver tsunami changeover, is going to affect the business owner retiring. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's his portfolio. That's right. Um, it's his retirement portfolio. It's going to affect... The new leader coming in, mm-hmm. it's his career, and it's going to infect the employees. It's their job. Yes. And, so, and their, their so what, lifestyle it depends on so which, job. Where do you want to start? You've got well, 15 minutes. Oh, gracious. And I could talk about that topic for hours. So you just described a Venn diagram that we use to talk about the balance of readiness that has to be created in order for a company to transition effectively. And one circle is the exiting owner, the the CEO who's headed off to the Sunset or Tahiti, whichever. And then another circle is the successors who are coming in to prove their worth in this new adventure. And then the third circle in this Venn diagram is the company itself. So all three of those circles have to be ready for this new leadership. And that's kind of a hard circus trick to pull off sometimes. So let's talk about the company itself being ready. And and this is this is the biggest area where my company can help make a difference. We have a way of taking a look at all the operational processes and procedures within a company and scoring them on a level of maturity that tells us whether you're getting business done by luck or the seat of your pants every day, or if you've got sustainable, well-documented, well-trained constantly evaluated processes that allow somebody to step in and do your job and nobody does affect nobody does well 
Some people do in some areas, but I don't find anybody that scores really high on that across the board. But we take a look at 166 different organizational elements and grade you on that maturity scale within each one of those. How long does that take to do? We can get it done in two days. Really? Yeah, it's it's um, it's asking a ton of questions. I bet it's repetitive as it can be, though. It's really not. Oh, okay. It's it it will keep you engaged because you're going to have to think about all of the elements of how you run your company. How many of these companies owners? We're talking about the owners that move out. How mm-hmm. many of them? How many of these companies will fail after the owners have sold the business or changed leadership? So that kind of depends on how you do it. Research shows that if you sell your company, whether it's to an external owner or a bigger company or maybe just to the employees under an ESOP, uh, that the failure rate is somewhere north of 50% within three years. If you're handing the company off in a generational transfer. Oh, I bet it's really ugly. Oh, the failure rate is 70% on the first generation. I think 84% if you skip a generation. If you skip two generations, the survival rate is 3%. Wow. And how many years does it take for that to happen? It usually happens pretty quickly, but it's it's that same three, three to five-year failure rate. Um, and you mentioned earlier that I was going to talk about CEO onboarding. We're exploring how that affects this failure rate. I read an article from Harvard Business Review recently that said that a good third um, a new CEOs watch out within 18 months. And I'm going, that's interesting because that correlates heavily as a contributing factor to these other failure rate numbers. And Harvard suggested that the key element in preventing these washout was the onboarding process that a company used to bring in this new leadership. They talked about the fact that it doesn't matter that this new CEO has all the skills in the world, all the great degrees, lots of experience. They have to also quickly come to know this new company. They have to understand the culture and the pulse and who are the players and how the company does what it does. And if they can come up to speed on that really quick, then they can use all those other skills and abilities to be effective and lead that company into the future. Do do they usually hire somebody from outside to come in or does it work better if you promote somebody from within? I have not seen research on that. That's a really interesting question. Seems like if you had somebody there that you had been training to be your successor and that had been there and already learned the culture and you knew whether they fit or not, that they that their success rate would be better, whether they were part of the family or not, that they had been there long enough, whether they're an employee or a family member, they'd been there long enough that you could tell these guys are going to follow along it seems makes like a ton of sense to me it does doesn't it it does it seems like that ought to work it seems like it would go up better uh so what's the what do you think the number one thing is well i think i already know this what's the the the, the 
the right thing for a CEO to do would be to get to know the culture. Are you talking about an incoming new mm-hmm. CEO? Yeah. Yes. They need to get to know the culture. They need to meet people. They need to get they out can't on the just floor. sit in, in their office behind a locked door and a secretary and expect to be effective. They've got to get out and meet and greet and hear people in their Don't new company. Don't uh, underestimate your social skills. Amen. And the other one that we haven't talked about that I think the listeners are probably going to really want to know about is is how this affects the employees. So you're the employee mm-hmm. who's powerless or feels powerless. You want to get up into that leadership role. You want to look for an opportunity, say things are shifting around here. Mm-hmm. Check my ego. Make sure everybody knows I'm here. Stand out. What would you say to an employee? Or... I need to jump ship and I need to do it now. So, you know, what should an employee be told how to mitigate the risks? Well, either one of those decisions is best made with information. So you as the employee need to really watch what's going on within your company. You know, get your head up and look around. If if your company gets sold, there's definitely going to be a change in leadership. So think about how that affects you and your position and are you a strong enough person that you're going to be recognized as an asset and the acquiring entity will definitely want to keep you or are you goofing off and playing with your iPhone and they're going to let you go because they don't see the value there's there's a huge domino effect um if if we do nothing more than swap out the CEO Uh Uh, you know, there are going to be people who will be vacated out of positions for one reason or another. So if the guy above me leads, leaves, am I the person that gets to move up? How do I make sure that my name's on that list? Or is the writing on the wall and I don't like where things are going? I can recognize that the culture is going to be profoundly different, that there's something about this that doesn't meet my personal goals or needs, and I need to be prepared to jump ship. So if you jump ship, you uh, you should start looking for another job because it's always mm-hmm. easier to get a job if you have a job. Right. So if you want to change jobs and you want to keep working, start looking for a job while you have a job. Mm-hmm. Don't come into your next job app interview and say, I just got laid off because the first no. thing the interview does, the first thing they say is, why did you get laid off? Right. Why were you not valuable? Or there is another th- thought on that. If you're getting close to retirement age, you might want to say, I'm just going to ride this out. Well, you might. It's and, a choice. Uh-huh, and say, I just want to, and then I'm just going to take up. Uh, unemployment for a few years and then go ahead and retire after that no matter what your decision you're better prepared to make it if you've got more information and you acquire that information by watching what your company's doing and and looking around you you can't make it in a vacuum Mm -hmm. i'm going to tell everybody that they're listening to up in your business with me carrie mccoy i'm speaking today with elise stroud founder and ceo of corporate insight strategy how do people get in touch with you? You can email me. Our favorite way. Yes, mine as well. At uh, AJS, that stands for Elise Johnston Stroud, at oh. CI Corporate Insight Strategy. So it's just CI? Yeah. Not CIS? No. It's probably already taken, wasn't it? Right. Couldn't <laughs> get the URL. <laughs> 
GoDaddy wouldn't let me have it. <laughs> GoDaddy. Um, so I think this is interesting about companies, too. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'd get your take on this real quick before we've got to go. We're about to sign off. Uh, Arkansas Flag and Banner lives in a constant state of transition. And I'm serious when I say that. And I have heard other people say that if you're not changing, you're sliding backwards in your True. industry's market shares. Mm-hmm. Uh, business is changing at the speed of light, and you have to run to stay in the forefront. That is truth. And that's another thing employees, excuse me, could look at when they're thinking about their business. How long has their business has their company been doing the exact same thing that it's been doing? Right. So we think that examining your operations and, and asking yourself critical questions about does this process procedure, whatever it is, still meet market needs? Is this still mm-hmm. best practice? And that's an advanced skill to really take a look at your belly button like that and to do something about it if it no longer is optimal. Those are two great things. Is is your company still meeting market needs and is your company uh, exercising the best practice? Right. Those are great tweetable things also. I hope my people are tweeting that one out. Elise? You're awesome. I'm not kidding. Thank you. I, I, you really are. You are. You make me look like a kindergartner girl. No. You are not afraid. I know. <laughs> she said no. This is for you. It's a desk set of the U.S. and Arkansas flag. Imagine that. I bet you don't imagine that. I bet you don't have one of those. Ah, Nobody hardly has a desk set of the U.S. and Arkansas flag or any state flag on their desk. I do now. I know, right? It's a really great gift idea. Uh, Tim, who do we have next week? Next week is going to be Bob Bidwell of the Studio Theater, where I recently saw their rendition of Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and it was awesome. Really? They're, the studio Theater is really cool, and this is going to be an exciting show, I think, for you sure. You never cease to amaze me. What'd you see? Hedvig and the Angry Inch. I don't even know what that is. It's about a transsexual punk rocker. Oh, I'd love that. It's so good. <laughs> Sounds great. That is so artsy-fartsy. Isn't that just like theater? So, yes, it's the Studio Theater. He's a thespian around town. Been around for a long time in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's on the corner of 7th and Spring in downtown Little Rock. And he's got some great traditional shows coming up. I don't remember what they were. Did you see them on the website? Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't catch it's any. It's the Studio Theater. If somebody wants to go on his website and look and see what they are. He's got real classic... Uh, I think like the best little whorehouse in Texas, maybe. I'm yeah, not sure. yeah, I think that's on the window. Uh, do so, you? Yeah. yeah. So, Elise, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. I hope Carrie. you'll come back. I can't wait to hear about your new corp- your new business and how well it does. And I think the advice you gave everybody today is priceless. And if anybody wants to see it, we'll have this broadcast available next week at flagandbanner.com. So to my listeners, if you've got a great entrepreneurial story you would like to share, I would love to hear from you. Send a brief bio and your contact info to questions with an S at upyourbusiness.org and someone will be in touch. Thank you for spending time with me. If you think this program has been about you, you're right, but it's also been for me. Thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something. I know you have today that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. 
If you'd like to hear this program again, next week, go to flagandbanner.com. Click on the tab labeled Radio Show, and there you'll find a podcast with links to resources you heard discussed on today's show. Carrie's goal? To help you live the American dream. 